over the past 30 years, people have gone from just sort of jumping on campaigns to doing all kinds of things at university level to go ahead and learn about campaigns before they actually jump into them. But you can actually make a solid living working in politics now. I'm Eric Wilson, Managing Partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics podcast. On this show, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Our guest today is Michael Cohen, the author of the book, Modern Political Campaigns, How Professionalism, Technology, and Speed Have Revolutionized Elections. Michael has one foot in academia and another in business. He's a PhD political scientist who lectures at Johns Hopkins University. And through his Cohen Research Group, he provides research services like polling to a number of corporate and public affairs clients. I think Michael has one of the most unique perspectives in the industry because he does straddle both worlds. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about his book and the insights that he has learned during his career in politics. Michael, I want to start by going through the premise of your book, which is conveniently laid out in the subtitle, and I think it's worth diving into each one. So how has the political industry become more professional? Maybe give us a sense of the the brief history there and, and what that means. Over the past 30 years, people have gone from just sort of jumping on campaigns to doing all kinds of things at university level to go ahead and learn about campaigns before they actually jump into them. But you can actually make a a solid living working in politics now. So if you're interested in politics or if you're interested in public policy, you can actually work in the business now as opposed to about 30 years ago when there really wasn't an educational infrastructure around it or even a public affairs infrastructure where you can go ahead and work on policy that you find very interesting throughout your career in between campaigns. How do you develop credentialing programs or experiencing programs that open it up so people who might not have those connections, right? Because it it is not really that open of a door right now. And I think we can do better to bring more people into the process of the political industry. Yeah, I think there's two ways. Number one, universities need to sort of figure out and reorient some of their programming towards becoming political professionals. I think now that with the explosion of all the public affairs work, with the explosion of interest now in politics, social media, and other platforms that have become ways to keep people engaged in between elections, that there's probably more of a need now than ever at the university level. Outside the university level, you have to look at places like political parties or even groups and um, vendors that are training people when they come to them. So what you really find is, is that the big shops, w- when you get there, um, you come there with sort of a raw resume, and then you get put through their own training programs on how we do polling or how we do media or how we do grassroots inside the organization. So even though you might have a liberal arts degree or even a, not a liberal arts degree, they will then bring you in and help train you. So for example, like when I, I had a PhD in political science, and I, I worked for the Republican Party of Florida in 1996. But I really didn't know a whole lot about polling, even though I had done some of it on campus, running the survey lab on campus while I was a PhD student, um, and also at the campaign level when we were using polling, but I didn't really know how to do it. And so when I got to Gallup, they put me through a very intensive program on how it's done, and um, or at least how they do it. And so you sort of learn at the foot of you know people who are really good at this, uh, if you get lucky enough to break in, right? If you don't, then like you're saying, 
like you're really kind of shut out. But what I found though is that in most, you know, great stories of people who have broken into this, you can either break in through the political party, through a vendor, or through just going to a campaign. I recommend going to a campaign directly and just jumping on. And if you volunteer and you show that you're good in most campaigns and in most great campaign stories, they say, well, you know, this guy came to us. We had no idea who he was, but within a month we hired him, <laughs> you know, and so within the campaign, I recommend my students and anyone who, um, who I mentor, make sure that you get a really holistic perspective of what the campaign is doing. Don't just sort of focus on your little niche because you might find that even though you're working in grassroots, you may find that media or technology or other pieces of the campaign are more interesting to you. And you can then make connections through the campaign window that way. And so really the window still is today as it was 30 years ago through volunteering on a campaign, meeting people, and then making connections from there to your first job. Right. That is the roadmap to how you get a career in politics. And just following Michael's advice is spot on. Uh, I just think about the people that I've worked with who got their start that way. Now, I do want to flag a couple of things just for consideration for our listeners of why this is so hard. One, we are on fixed timetables, right? So campaigns are run every two years. Most of our big party committees have a two-year horizon. So this sort of long-term development traditionally hasn't been something that's been on their plate. And then second thing, we function in a campaign finance system for federal candidates where there are limits on how much money. And so the, the dollars that you are spending on professional development and training, which doesn't necessarily have a clear ROI to the campaign, is a dollar that doesn't go to contacting a voter or paying for media. And so that makes it really tough to, to build these, these programs out. Can you give an example of what impact this professionalization has had on our politics? I think it's mainly been positive. I mean, when you find people who are looking at their careers in college and they're saying to themselves, well, what am I going to do for a living? The idea now that politics can be your vocation is actually drawing smarter people to the business. So we're finding a lot more people with tech backgrounds, with strong math backgrounds, which is not something most people who are working in politics really go for. Um, and so you, what you're really finding is, is a lot highly educated people who are very motivated, who want to be involved in all the various aspects of it. And so from my perspective, I mean, it's actually been a really a big boon for people who have been in the business for like 25 years, such as myself, because I get to learn from them when they're coming and working with us. And to me, that's great. Because most of the time, a lot of the people who have been working in this business feel like that they've learned it all, they've seen it all. But it's great to get sort of a real fresh group of people who are coming in with different perspective on politics. And I think that that's really healthy for the system. Let's move on to another one of your key themes from the book, which is speed. You, you mentioned that speed has a, had a revolutionizing effect on elections. Elaborate on what you mean by that and how would our listeners see that in the campaigns that they follow? Sure. Well, it, you know, the older you are, the more you probably understand it. I mean, if you're, you know, Gen Z or, or younger, you may look at this and say, well, my, my life is always very interconnected. You know, my life is it's always, you know, from one thing to another all the time. But there wasn't always that way. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, there were 24, 48, 72 hour news cycles. Sometimes you would wait for a president to react to a situation like we just had in Afghanistan over a day or two and it not be a weird thing. Whereas now something happens in Afghanistan and we're counting the minutes until Biden gets in front of a podium. And then we're also counting the minutes between when the GOP will go ahead and respond and when super PACs will have their ads up on social media already. So all of those things have really compressed time. And what that really does is that makes it much more 
important to number one, have money on hand so you can act right away and place ads and also to have all of your research and all of your grassroots. Everyone has to be primed at all times because if something big happens, you always want to move right away on it. You don't want to get caught flat-footed. And so campaigns where they used to be two and four years now, we're essentially now in a new permanent campaign posture. Whereas the old sort of version of the permanent campaign was that presidents would continue to run and members of Congress and everyone who's elected would continue to run. But what's happening now is that because the outside groups are so powerful and they spend so much money, that you're really running a new permanent campaign, which is more 3D chess and more sort of an open world free-for-all online as opposed to playing checkers, which is what I used to see growing up uh, when I was watching politics. Right. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that permanent campaign in just a minute. Talking about speed, it reminds me of a motto that I hear frequently on campaigns, which is speed kills. And of course, that is not in the context of being dangerous, but rather essential to stopping your opponent and meeting them head on. Yeah. If you are out there before your opponent can even communicate, you get to define what that message parameters will be. And that is the worst thing in a campaign It's really losing that kind of view. That is sort of the conventional wisdom on that. I wonder if that holds true. I think it does. Because if you saw, and I'm sure you were watching it like we all were, what was going on in Afghanistan, it was pretty clear that Biden was fairly behind the eight ball. You know, he let essentially the entire thing go probably a day too long. He always seemed to be trying to catch up to the narratives that were going on online. And so those can catch on very quickly. And then you're the one who's the political actor who's reacting to the environment as opposed to shaping the environment. And so Trump was actually very, very good at that, reacting in real time, even though you may, may or may not like what he said. He was definitely engaged in real time, whereas Biden takes his time to go and make a big speech or sit down or something like that. That's much more traditional than what you were normally seeing in the environment right now. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking today with Michael Cohen, who's the author of the book Modern Political Campaigns, which is a great book about the transformation of electoral politics in this country and around the world, frankly. Michael, I want to now dig into the technology component of your book, which, as you know, Startup Caucus, we're investing in the latest in campaign tech startups, but technology has been driving transformation in our politics for a while. Can you give us a quick history lesson again on tech revolution in politics and how it's going? It sort of begins around the era of television, building on the era of radio. And so Technology in campaigns used to be just media technology, where you start with radio, you go through television, you go through cable television, and now it's over the top in streaming. And that's sort of one component of this. Basically, how do you reach people with a message um, that you define either from earned media through the news media or from paid? And that's one piece of it. But the really big jump and the really big change that I've seen over the past 30 years is really in knowledge about voters. When I was starting out in 1996, going door to door in you know Southwest Florida, all we knew is that they voted. That's it. We didn't even know any more information about that. We barely knew that if they were Democrats or Republicans, we would get lists from the state. We would throw it into clunky DOS software on you know computers, you know that you had to crank up with your arm. I'm kidding, but you would get spit out you know lists that you would go and you would knock on doors, and nine out of ten doors or eight out of ten doors, there'd be people who didn't want to talk to you. Whereas now we know so much more about who we're talking to and who we're trying to communicate and influence that it's actually 
made it much more interesting to run a campaign and much more personalized and much more respectful, I would say. Because the last thing you want in a campaign is to talk to people who you're never going to be able to have vote for you. So the more you talk with people who are influenceable or members of your base or people who just need to be dragged out, that's really a big leap. And so just the idea now that we know a lot more about people and are able to deploy it not only on computers, but on handhelds, and then be able to crowdsource all of this information through different platforms really does change the game on how you campaign because now you don't have to then go back to headquarters, put your information into a computer that everyone uses. You know, it goes to the cloud. Everyone has the information in real time and you can see how well you're performing on all the major metrics that your campaign is following. And so to me, it's a function of two things. It's a function of revolution in media and how we interact with media and how we watch media and how we consume media and also data, which is more about the kind of information we have on voters. And between those two, you really have huge leaps in how you can be much more efficient with campaign dollars and also much more competitive in races that frankly, you probably weren't able to 10, 20, 30 years ago. You touched on something, which I think is a, probably not a widely held opinion, but I happen to agree with it, that this has made campaigns more respectful because it is speaking to the interests of what voters want to talk about, talking to the voters that want to hear from you, as opposed to sort of treating all of an electorate with one approach. And so that is contrary, right, to what we see from voters in, in polls where they say, oh, I don't want to be micro-targeted, uh, hyper-targeted social media ads are invasive and it's divided. I've seen that too. And I reject that out of hand because the fact of the matter is I would rather have a feed in my Instagram that talks about things that I'm interested in as opposed to things that I'm not interested in, right? I mean, growing up, I would, I would see a whole bunch of ads on my television that had nothing in the world to do with me. Think about a world where you know they're communicating to me as if they not only understand me, but actually care about me. And I think that that is a much more respectful way of running campaigns. Now, you know, in the wrong hands, it gets scary. And I think that that's what people are reacting to. So they're reacting to foreign actors being involved in our campaigns. They're reacting to people who they don't agree with. They're reacting to people they think who might have you know, nefarious ideas about what they want to do and influence you. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is better for everyone if we as campaigners look at people more as individuals, as opposed to big gigantic groups of people, because that is much more respectful. Michael, so because of this threefold revolution of speed, professionalism, and technology, we've arrived at what you label the permanent campaign. And you're not a fan of that. You write, I know it's good business for political campaign professionals, but I'm not sure this is good for us as a country. Can you elaborate what you mean by that and, and maybe give some examples? You know, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. What that means is that we elect leaders to go out and make decisions for us. If we like those decisions, we give them a thumbs up or thumbs down, or, you know, we go and we vote for somebody else. And I think that that has sort of broken the model. When we don't stop campaigning and we can't focus on what's going on beyond that, or just go back to our lives and just feel like, okay, I can engage or disengage from campaigns whenever I feel like it. Then it becomes an always on thing. It really changes the game on how um, politicians act. So they no longer will are willing to make compromises. They're no longer willing to take time to dive deep into something. They no longer have enough time 
to do a lot of things because they have to keep raising a lot of money because they have to continuously engage their voters. They have to continuously listen to them and maybe take their advice as opposed to, you know, exercising their judgment. So I think that we're a little bit too far on the side of democracy and a little bit further away from where I would prefer to be on, on a republic. Now, that being said, I actually think the, the permanent campaign is a mixed bag. You know, in an era where uh, voters feel alienated from the process, continuing to engage voters is actually pretty good. You know, the complications revolve around time, you know, doing the job, working with colleagues and thinking. And the other complication is, is that campaigns have become extraordinarily negative. And the reason why, which I count, I pick up in my book, is that negative information is simply more powerful than, than positive information. You know, negative information makes you take a step back and think, as opposed to positive information where you sort of look at it, it passes over you, it washes over you, and you kind of move on. That's that loss aversion cognitive bias, like really hardwired into us, right? Oh, it is. Yeah. And it is in, in many different ways, right? So for example, I'll get emails from my um, daughter's college every day, and it seems like they're interminable, and they're hugely long, and I, I will scan them and be done with it. And it's usually sort of rah-rah stuff. Hey, the university's doing this. Hey, the university's doing that. Once in a while, I'll get an email or a text or some kind of warning that, oh, like yesterday, like in my daughter goes to Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, there was a tornado warning there yesterday. You know, I saw that and I stopped in my tracks and I said, I immediately need to pay attention to this and do something about it. And that's the power of negative inf information over positive information. It's the same thing in campaigns. And so when you're looking at the permanent campaign, it really just sort of wears on people because we know that negative information works more than positive information. So it makes people feel negative about the system, not just about one candidate or another. That's sort of the complication of this. Now, the upside of this, and this is sort of why I call it the new permanent campaign, is because it brings in all of this public affairs stuff. So when there is a big issue coming through, like let's say the infrastructure bill or even the reconciliation bill will be coming through on the budget, those are things that the public should be involved in, right? And because the public should be involved in, because it, it affects so many different people, there will be groups that will be very interested in communicating during this. And so that will bring voters in, you know, to a, a conversation where they would just normally check out and not be involved in it. And so you become, I think it's, it sort of boosts citizenship from that perspective. So if you are, you know, working in whatever various industry that might get taxed more, well, yeah, you really should be involved because if you're not, if you're not involved, well, you know, your salary is going to go down or maybe your job is going to be lost or something like that. And to me, like those are actually important things to be involved with now. And so from my perspective, you know, it's a mixed bag. The big part that I think that actually really does help is that I think that when you're building campaigns now, we're going to get to this point where um, we have maxed out the wings of both parties. We know who shows up on election day. We know who's a reliable voter. We know what to say and do for them to bring them out. We're getting down to that last 10 to 15% that can be moved. And to me, the data is the guide. So the more we know about them, the more we can reach out to them and maybe build um, campaigns more from the middle out as opposed to the outside in because we will have the information which will make it much more um, efficient from a fun fundraising standpoint to actually communicate with them as opposed to, well, we're never going to be able to get those people. So we'll, we'll get who we can get and hopefully we'll win on election day.
My view on this is that the genie is out of the bottle in terms of the permanent campaign and the complexity that we're dealing with, and that we're in this sort of transitional stage where you've got a, a whole civilization that came online in the last 20 years, really. And we're trying to figure out how we get through that. In a lot of ways, the campaigns that are being run are reflective of the voters and their priorities, which I think you know, by and large is trending in the right direction, but obviously creating some headaches along the way. Michael, I want you to kind of put on your prediction hat for a moment and think about what the future of politics in this country looks like. Give us what you hope to see and then contrast that with the worst case scenario. I think that we're sort of on a 10-year project to understand voters and meet them where they are. I think if we do that, that's a huge win for everybody. You know, we used to rely on voter data from the government, broadcasts, networks, and then social networks. But there is no substitute to building your own list and to really owning that list and to curate that list along the way. I mean, I think parties and vendors could play a big role here, um, but candidates are also going to have to do a lot of that work themselves. The best case scenario from my perspective is we understand voters and we don't waste their time. We focus on them as individuals and that results in really high turnout. The worst case scenario is we turn them off with negative information and fewer good people want to run, and then there's low turnout. And for me, you know, the way, again, this really could work is we decide after a while that we have mastered the wings and we need to go straight up the middle. So that's the key from my perspective. We start looking at these voters who will go back and forth, try and understand who they are, why they go back and forth, and then engage them in ways that are not only you know, smart, but also respectful. And I go back to that word a lot. But to me, like, if you respect the voters, um, they will in turn give you more of their votes than not. And I feel like we are on that path because we are now in a situation where we have essentially unlimited storage and technology to be able to keep information on people and then to curate it along the way with research and with behavioral data and be able to go back and say, you know what? You know, this person has sort of changed over time. They used to vote Democrat, now they vote Republican, and we know the reasons why. So when we reach out to them, these are the kinds of things that we should say to them because that's what's important to them, as opposed to, well, you're either for Trump or against Trump. Like, it's not usually a binary choice for people in most elections. It's not one or the other. You support this person, you support that person. It's more of a, a very interesting complexity. And then because we're going to have that data, we're going to be able to deploy resources against that data to help um, communicate with people. I want to thank my guest, Michael Cohen, for joining us today. It's been a really fascinating discussion, and I want to thank him for writing this book. It's available wherever books are sold. Just search for Modern Political Campaigns by Michael Cohen. Remember to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts and share this episode with a friend if it made you a little bit smarter. 